This morning, we continue in this journey, continue in this sermon series called Never Fails that is going from chapter 9 of the book of Romans through chapter 11 of the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bibles, as, as Heather read to us today, please turn with us to Romans chapter 10 today as we'll be looking through several verses, 5 through 13, really focusing, putting our magnifying glass on, on verses 9 and 10 and then picking it back up there next week as we continue to look at this idea that has the Word of God failed? Even when we're seeing people not being saved or a very small number of people being saved, especially among Jews and also with Gentiles, is that we begin to ask this question, has God failed? And the answer is no. And so Paul goes through that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the writing of these passages to illustrate over and over and over and over and over again that God's word has not failed. And so thank you for gathering with us here this morning as we seek to worship Jesus and to make disciples, to edify the person and work of Jesus and through the explaining of God's truth so that we will live it out in practice. And so today, if you have a weekly or a listening guide, you can follow along there. That's some stuff if you want to take notes or a grocery list, we provide the paper for you. You just come along with us, alongside of us, as we are looking at this idea that uh, this will be part four of this series, that God will complete his mission. So let's, let's look at this passage. Specifically, let's look at verse 9. I'm, I'm going to explain what's happening above 9 in just a moment. Uh, but let's, let's actually begin in verse 8. It says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, we've been learning this understanding that our righteousness, whenever you see the word righteousness in Scripture, that essentially means how do we become right with God? How is one saved? How is one justified? Um, how is one converted? How is one reconciled in his relationship with God because of sin? That relationship is broken. And so we see from this passage that Paul is expounding on this text and he is reminding his Jewish brothers and sisters who are trying to work themselves to heaven without Jesus that their attempts to do so are frail and they will ultimately fail. We must have Jesus to be saved, not your works. And so he tells us, and for my first point here that I want you to understand, that there is fruit to salvation, that if you have truly been converted, if you have truly been saved by Jesus in this place, then there is fruit of that knowledge and salvation that Jesus is Lord, that we're saved by Jesus and all of those things. So we see here from Paul's writing that the first thing that we see in, in Romans 10, 9 through 10 is this idea of the first expression of this, or one of the first expressions of this, is confession. Confession. Now, what does confession mean? What are we confessing? Confession means to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or, or, or to a person. It means that in this context, the person of Christ. It is a statement of identification, of faith, of, of confidence, and of trust. We are to, with our mouths, express an, a binding commitment to Jesus publicly. Publicly, thus acknowledging our relationship to him as Lord and Savior. Okay? So what's Paul getting at? He's like, man, if you truly are a Christian, if you truly have been saved by Jesus, then there is something that is going to come out of your mouth a lot. And that is the talking about the person and work of Jesus. All right? 
Man, if you have ever met a, a grandparent that becoming a grandparent for the first time, you want to tell them to be quiet. Because they cannot stop talking about that first grandbaby. Why? Because they love that grandbaby. All right? If you're a young lady and you start dating a handsome fella who loves Jesus and goes to Mission Church and your pastor has deemed that he is profitable for dating material, then you will not stop talking about him. Oh, I met this guy. He's really handsome. He had hair or no hair. Um, He's really handsome. He loves Jesus. His mom is so sweet. He has this beautiful relationship. I'm, I'm tearing up right now, okay? I mean, this is a constant talking. Why? Because you love that, all right? If you have a new vehicle, you usually talk about it. Why? Because you love that. If your sports team wins, you talk about it because you love that or you love them, okay? We talk about the things that we love. Um, I find myself trying to be annoying by transitioning every conversation that I'm in with somebody new to be about Jesus. Now, I don't always get out the gospel and those sorts of things, but I want them to know up front, because I used to be embarrassed that I was a pastor. I didn't want to tell them that. I even told a lady on a, one, a plane one time that I'm a spiritual advisor. And she said, what about? I said, Jesus. <laughs> um, and, and, and yet, and so every time, man, you need Jesus. I'm a pastor. I'm all about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Why? Because I love Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have truly been saved by him, a silent faith is a lack of faith. If you can't talk about Jesus publicly, and please don't give me this garbage about how your life is evangelistic, because your life stinks at evangelism, okay? The gospel, a confession about Jesus, about our excitement about Jesus, is a very public thing. Is your relationship with Jesus private? Yeah, there are moments that it should have a private life as well. But if your relationship is only characterized as a private relationship with him, and it is never made public, then ladies and gentlemen, you do not have a relationship with him. Paul is exhorting these people. He said, we have Jesus, we've been saved by Jesus, and because we've been saved by Jesus, then we're going to openly confess with our mouths. Now, some of you have heard this quote before that says, um, you know, talk about Jesus all the time or uh, share the gospel all the time, and no one really knows who said this. Sometimes people will say it's Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, but nobody really knows that. Um, they'll say this thing that, uh, share the gospel all the time, use words in, when necessary, You've heard that before? It's a lie. It's not in the Bible. Okay? You know what that is? It's an excuse for us to shut up and not talk about Jesus. Now, my daughter, if she heard that, she just heard me cuss because I said shut up. I apologize. Lord, forgive me. All right? But there is this thing that you do with your mouth. You speak publicly about the person and work of Jesus, okay? The opposite of confession is to deny, all right? And so if I was to come up to a lot of you and to ask you, you're not going to do the Peter thing, all right? You guys know the Peter thing? Um, Jesus is, is taken off, and, and they come to Jesus on three different, or they come to Peter on three different occasions, and they ask him, hey, aren't you that guy that hangs out with Jesus? And Jesus is like, who's Jesus, Right? They ask him again, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the Bible even illustrates that he gets mad because people keep asking him, and he keeps denying them with his what? If I was to come to you guys, and most people in the South, no one is going to do that. Or very few people are going to deny that verbally. But you know how we do deny it? With our silence. Because to not say is to deny him. All right? We see this, that there is a public confession of faith. We even say that, that, that baptism is a part of that. Baptism is much more than you getting wet, is a public telling of that Jesus has radically changed me, and yet simultaneously it is a deep covenant and fellowship of what Jesus has done. 
here in this next week, or next, not next week, that was really close for you, Pastor Justin, because um, he's like, what? Pastor Justin's going to be doing a Sunday morning small explanation on what is baptism, because some of you need to be baptized. You need to publicly profess your faith in Jesus through baptism, but you need to understand what that is and the seriousness of what that commitment means, okay? But that is a public confession. God wants us to do this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8 through 10, it says this, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Ladies and gentlemen, we see this picture here in the scripture that we have a responsibility, that there is something that exudes from our very existence. The thing that we love the most or things that we love will naturally speak about. And God has called us in public places to speak the person and work of Jesus. Now, when you're speaking about him, you need to make sure that it's been based on what the Bible says and not what your grandma told you, okay? Because some grandmas got it wrong. And we've painted a picture of Jesus that is not found in the Scripture. That's why knowing our Scripture is extremely important, okay? So that we are painting a true picture of the Gospel that is in the person and work of Jesus, that this is who Jesus says he is. So guess what? That's who he is is. This is extremely important that we have this idea. Think about the disciples. Think about the early church followers. They died not necessarily for what they did. They died for what they said. Okay? We think this whole idea of saying Jesus is Lord is a new thing. It was actually said about most of the Caesars throughout history. Caesar is Lord. When Jesus comes onto the scene, who is Lord? Caesar is. He would hand out bread, throw a circus for him. If you've seen Gladiator, go Maximus. Um, you kind of see this sorts of things. If we can entertain the people, throw them some bread occasionally, what will they say? Caesar is Lord, and then all of a sudden, these little Christ, these little people who are coming along, this, this uprising, maybe we need to be more of an uprising, this uprising from grassroots homes in, in crazy redneck small towns throughout the Middle East began to fall in love with this Messiah named Jesus. And they became countercultural as the culture declared that Caesar is Lord, or money is Lord, or immorality is Lord, or drinking, or drugs, or lying, sex, whatever you want to put there is Lord. These group of people who follow after Jesus are now declaring to the rooftops, Jesus is Lord. And they died for it. Deny it, you will be saved. Say it. And we will throw you to the lions. And thousands of men and women throughout Christian history have given their lives for the confession of what came out of their mouths. Maybe we, the reason why we don't see that more in America is because there's little confession that Jesus is Lord. Okay? Ladies and gentlemen, we should all have some people that don't like us because they think we're annoying. Not just because some of us are just annoying. Okay? And they don't like us because of that. But they shouldn't like us because we're all about Jesus. And we can't help but to confess and profess that Jesus is Lord. They died for what they sell. They proclaimed Christ in the public square and they died for it. They died for it. All right. Now, the second kind of, or and, and these can be, uh, first or second, because Paul even flips them in his passage here. The second kind of fruit that we see here is faith and belief. Faith and belief. Kind of synonyms for 
for one another. All right? Let's read the passage again because he kind of flip-flops these things. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the first time he says it's a confession and then your heart. The second time he says it, it's your heart first and then confession, all right? But he's talking here about this idea of faith, that we're saved by faith and belief. You are not saved by your works. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now live that way. You're not saved by your works. Paul has illustrated this on several occasions. He even illustrates this again in Romans 10, 5 through 8. Let's read there again. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does that mean? Okay, he's using some language there that's hard for us to understand. Simply put, this is what Paul is saying there. He is illustrating that it is impossible for you to achieve righteousness. That's, again, right standing before God. I grew up in a church, that means to get saved. All right, you got to say it like that to really get it. All right? And so what's he saying? That it is impossible for you to get saved um, by your works. He's asking this question. He's, he's kind of making us go, oh, I'm totally ridiculous. Because is it possible for me through my works to go to heaven and to bring Jesus to earth? Has anybody been able to do that? No. He's saying, is it possible through your works, through your good deeds, to when Jesus was in the tomb, that in some way through our good works and good deeds that we could summon Jesus to his resurrection? No. Who did those things? God sends Jesus. Who resurrects Jesus? Did you resurrect Jesus? Was Mary and her Mary tribe around her with those perfumes and and herbs and all that stuff that they were hoping to put on Jesus on Easter Sunday morning? Did they stand outside of the tomb and summons Jesus? No. God summons Jesus. Your good works cannot. They cannot. We cannot bring Jesus down. We cannot raise Jesus up. We can. It's futile to believe that some way we can save ourselves through our works. Now, Paul is wanting to illustrate this to the Jews who have distorted the view of God's law and plan of redemption. Because again, what have the Jews tried to make God's law into? This is the way of salvation. If we do these things, it'll mean salvation for us. God never intended the law to mean that. And so they're so consumed with the law that they're missing what? They're missing who? Jesus. All right? They're missing Jesus. He is wanting them and us to understand that Christ is the end of works-based salvation. All right? If you grew up like me, you should be saying, you tell them, pastor. Amen. Because that's how I grew up. It was all based on me. All right? You go to an altar. You feel shameful because you said bathroom words in your mind, as my mama calls them. All right? And all of a sudden, you feel like you're going to hell. Okay? You even, maybe you're driving down the road. Somebody pulls out in front of them, and you don't flip them the Christian bird. That's the dove. You flip them the other one. And then you have a wreck and you die. Where do you go? Well, the way I grew up, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. Why? Because it's based on what you do. You don't need Jesus. You need to be a goody-goody. All right? You need to get straight A's. Wear iron pants. And a pocket protector for Jesus. All right? That's what you need to do. And then you'll be saved. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a, that's a lie. It's a distortion. Belief. Faith. I mean, the, the, 
the end-all, be-all verse, John 3, 16. We see this in the Bible. Whoever, excuse me, for God so loved the what? Y'all got to work with me. That he gave his only what? That whosoever or whoever believes in who? Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Acts 16, 30 through 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. We see something here taking place. Each one of those believes, it says, Believe in him. John 3.36, believes in the Son. Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now, what is the subject of belief? What is the condition of belief? It's whom you believe in. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Him. What would be awesome to do is to go through a Bible and wherever it says him when that's representing Jesus is to mark out him and put Jesus. It's an awesome way to read scripture. Okay? Because it's all about Jesus. Dr. Wayne Grudem, I think I put this in your notes, says this. Because a lot of people are really confused on what saving faith is. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ. As a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. I'll read it again. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. Salvation by faith alone. It is what we call you know, the, the five graces. It's one of those. Sola fide. By faith alone. You're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But what does this mean? Actual faith or belief is trusting in something. I've often used the elementary you know, kind of illustration here. I can believe from a distance that that chair will hold me up. But it is different for me to sit in the chair. That is true trust in the chair. One is just a belief. It is an, a, an agreement that this will happen. But true faith, true trust in that chair is for me to sit in it. The same is with Jesus. Saving faith is not just believing in some facts, but it is trusting in them. You can agree with facts and not have faith. All right? You've got to get that, ladies and gentlemen. You have got to, you need to marinate on it, soak in it, pour a hot bath full of it, and rest in that truth, and wrestle with it, and just evaluate your lives, looking at the idea, do I simply agree with some facts, or do I have trust in them? See, everyone on the planet has faith. They do. It's just to whom or what they have faith in. So we need to be very specific in our understanding and in our confession that what are we saying? We have faith in the person and work of Jesus. If you stand before God, most of the time, if you, if you talk to people, if you were to stand before God, and this is how I was taught in crusade, girls, um, how to share the gospel, right? If you were to stand before God tonight and he was to say, why should I let you into this heaven? Why should I let you in this joint? You know what the most of the answers that people will give is, is I'm a good person. I went to church, okay? I have 30 Bibles at my house. I walked an aisle. I went to a VBS. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if God's going to ask you that question, okay? But if he does, I'm going to give you the right answer. If he's to say why, you say Jesus. 
Jesus. Faith is trusting not in your own work for salvation. It is completely trusting in the work of Jesus for your salvation. How do I know that Jesus has saved me? Because he has. Because he has. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. He has forever changed my life. It is trusting in his work, not my own. Okay? It is not simply uh, you know, intellectually ascending to something and some idea. It is completely trusting in the whom of the idea. And his name is Jesus. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. I often quote this passage a lot. For by grace you have been saved through, anybody know this? Faith. Okay? But listen to this second part. And this is not your own doing. Because a lot of times we try to conjure up faith. Okay? It is a gift from God. Not as a result from works. Alright? So I can't work myself there because what's the temptation when I work and I want you to be impressed and God to be impressed? I do this. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared for him that we should walk in them. So, you are saved by what? Faith, not works. But we must realize that true faith has been given to you through the Holy Spirit always works. Say it again. Because that's what good preachers do. We repeat ourselves. But we must realize That true faith that has been given to you through the Holy Spirit always works. So if good works is absent from your faith, then your faith is absent as well. Isn't this what James tells us? That faith without works is dead? Do you have faith because you work? No. But because you have faith, you work. Do you get that? Because there are a lot of people in our world that that is extremely shaky ground. The temptation is to go too far, well, I just believe. And their life represents nothing of that belief. The other side tries to work themselves there. Okay? We must get this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you truly have been saved by Jesus, you are going to publicly confess that he is Lord in a public square. Even at your job that tells you you can't talk about religious things? Yes. What if I lose my job? McDonald's hiring every day. Where is the exclusive cause for you and your job? Okay, There is a, in the public square, a confession that Jesus is Lord that is made of true believers. You can't separate your truth in those places. You can't. But also, it's the realization that, that in this, that the fruit of God saving me is true trust and belief and faith in the person and work of Jesus. And that faith is going to change your life. It's going to change my life. If you have been saved by Jesus, you should be able to say, this is what life was like before Jesus, and this is what life is like after Jesus, and those should be as different as black is the presence of all color and white being the presence or the absence of all color. Those things are two antitheses. They are opposites of one another. There should be clarity in those differences. Authentic salvation produces faith. It does. All right? And faith produces works. Always. Write it down. Okay? Now, the second portion of the sermon today, I want to take these passages and this concept of confession and belief in your heart, and I want to give you a very pastoral warning. 
Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask that you would really listen to what I'm saying. Don't put words into my mouth and don't take words away. All right? Because how many of you have ever heard these passages before? Brother, you just need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Right? And, and I, my fear is, is that these have become some of the most twisted passages in all of Scripture. And here's the reason why. Over the past 200 years, these passages have, in many occasions, especially in the South, and even from my own mouth, um, have been distorted in a desire to see people saved. Is that a bad desire? Hopefully you've seen from mission and the things that we've been covering. It should be our desire to want to see Jesus radically change people's lives. True? Amen. It should be a deep, agonizing thing within us. This person is lost. There is a person is lost. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't do anything else but pray to God and proclaim to these people that Jesus is Lord. That should be the desire of our hearts. And yet so many of us, including myself, that's why I'm as directed toward this guy as much as anyone else. In a, in a, in a heart, our intentions were good. How many of you guys have ever quoted these passages to somebody? And passages says, confess with your mouth, believe with your heart. Jesus is the Lord, you'll be saved. Isn't that kind of the way we do it? Our intentions were good. However, this type of evangelism leads itself to promoting false conversions. Pastor Eric, what do you mean by false conversions? Well, thank you for asking False conversions are people who are sitting in church or outside of church and they believe that they are saved and yet they are not. Okay? The Bible says that when God works in our hearts, we see this in John chapter 3, that we are born again. You had nothing to do with that. That was an eternal thing. We call that regeneration. You born and again, that's how the other preachers used to say that next to saved, all right? Born to, are you born and again, all right? This is God's work. This is what he does behind the scenes, all right? The external expression of what God does internally inside of your heart is he causes you to have faith and belief. This is the workings of God. But it's extremely difficult because people have been led down paths, and ladies and gentlemen, confessionally and and very burdensome upon me this morning, thinking back to the way that I have led people towards Jesus, have led people not to being born again, but have had tendency to lead people into believing a salvation in their hearts and lives that does not exist. Y'all, let's pretend we're going to church. Preacher gets up, preaches. Song leader comes up to the front. Typically these places, it's on a piano. Okay? Starts just playing some ballad, hymn, contemplation music. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And like little robots, what does everybody do? Except my sister. She's done like yeah. Okay? You know it's true. <laughs> I was. I had both eyes on you because I was hoping you'd raise your hand. All right. Every head bowed. Every eyes closed. Nobody looking. They'll start walking around. You can hear them. Anybody been there? Every head bowed. Every eye closed. Nobody looking. Just me and you and God. 
Some of y'all are sinners. Some of y'all are involved in sin. And somebody's sitting there right now going, the pastor knows what I did last night. All right? I want to know that if you're in this place tonight, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. Everybody head, everybody out. Eyes closed. Just me, you, and Jesus. If you need Jesus in your life, if you don't want to go to hell, I want you to raise your hand. Even if no one raises their hand, what does he say? Oh, I see that hand back there. I know that because, again, my sister, my spy, because she's going to tell me at lunch. Even if nobody raised their hands. Oh, I see that hand. Bless them. Bless them, Lord. Deliver them from hell. Right? Because what does he know? If he breaks the ice... Nobody look around. Every head bow. Every eye close. What do we say? You're talking to somebody that's not a believer. Brother, just confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart and you'll be saved. You'll never have to worry about hell again. This is how this passage gets used a lot. You say this. So you're talking to a person. You say, so repeat after me. And this is the official Billy Graham version. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. That's how Billy would say it. I know I'm a sinner from North Carolina. He'd say, repeat this. We've all done this. Or a lot of us have. If you've grown up in church, you've probably done this. It's called the sinner's prayer, right? So we'll say things like, repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus. And the person you're standing there that's got their head bowed says, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want you to trust and follow you. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. Now, I love Billy. I have great respect for Billy Graham, so please don't send your hate mail. Okay? After we repeat that and after they repeat it, we usually ask the question, did you pray that prayer? Which sounds really ridiculous when they just repeated every word you just said to ask them if they prayed that prayer. Then we'll typically ask the question, oh, did you mean it? What do they always say? Yes. Then we say this, now you need to get baptized. Do you want to? You do? Awesome. We've put an express lane into the gospel. You'll hear a lot of times online people talking about these mass conversions in their churches. It becomes a very trophy for us as pastors. Now, do mass conversions ever happen? Better nod your head, yes. Because we see it a few times in the Bible. In Acts chapter 2, what is it? 3,000 were added to them that day. Is the church constantly growing in the book of Acts? Yes. But ladies and gentlemen, this is not the norm. I don't want to use this name because I'm not for sure if it was the major one or not, but I heard one major evangelist is said that his hopes is that of all of the thousands of people that came down front out of his crusade, that he would be pleased with the Lord if at least five of them, 5%, were actually saved. But what are you able to say? We had 500 conversions today. Do you know that? Because you can profess salvation and be lost. You can. And this is my fear. Mass experiences do happen. Yes, we see them in the Bible. Okay, but they are rare. 
they're rare. And the only ones I trust completely are the ones in the Bible. I do not feel that it is our responsibility as the pastors, even if we have people coming up front, to say there are people getting saved up here. Because it is not my place to put you in heaven or to put you in hell. That is God's responsibility. He is at work. Only He knows your heart. I heard of a fellow Acts 29 brother this week planted a church in Boston, Massachusetts. After a few years now of following Jesus, planting a new church, being an Acts 29 guy like we are uh, in the process of becoming, all of those sorts of things, that now he has not only walked away from Jesus or pastoring, but he has completely walked away from Jesus and is leading the secular society. He is an angry atheist now in Boston preaching a gospel against God. After years of so-called professing Jesus. This is a serious, serious issue. That we need to be very careful that we should be laboring with somebody. I am not saying that the sinner's prayer in and of itself is, doesn't ever work. But I want you to get this. You cannot open up the Bible and see a formula like that. When people come to Jesus in the Gospels, there is major radical change in them. I am not saying that an altar call is a bad thing, but it's, it's not in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's, it's not, can't be, that God can't use it or that it's all in all sinful or satanic or any of those sorts of things. But I want you to get that's only been around for about 200 years. That is new to Christendom. And yet, even in some great revivals throughout American history even, there was these great masses of people, the proclamation of the gospel, and then the men and women of God and other pastors and counselors would spend hours speaking with these people, talking with these people, not just trying to get them to answer the baptism questions. Because anybody can say yes three times. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What do you say? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected? Yes. Do you follow after him? Yes. Anybody can say yes three times and be lost. This is extremely serious. Does the gospel demand a response? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. It does. But it's typically not the response that a lot of us have experienced. It's not simply the signing of a card and repeating some pre-written prayer. It is much different. Speaking upon these things, a great book out there, J.D. Greer wrote this book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And he makes this um, quote. He says, demanding a response then isn't the problem. Any faithful proclamation of the gospel will call for a response. But it is a call to faith in Jesus, repentance, and the difficult road of discipleship, not merely a prayer. Ultimately, my concern is not that the words or actions that we might use to express faith in Christ, but that we don't substitute those words or actions for repentance and faith. Praying the sinner's prayer has become something like a Protestant ritual. We have people go through the, get to gain entry into heaven. As gospel shorthand, it presents salvation as a transaction one conducts with Jesus and moves on from rather than the beginning of a posture we take toward the finished work of Christ and maintain it for the rest of our lives. How many people have responded to the gospel with words and not with their life? Does God desire a one-time prayer from you? Or does he require your life? Here's what I know, ladies and gentlemen, in the crowd here today, that there are some of you are banking on a one-time event when you were 8, 10, 
12, 22, or some season in your life where you were in a spiritual greenhouse and you were growing with Jesus, you were banking on that season or that one prayer on that one day at that youth altar call or that VBS at your parents' house, wherever you are, you were banking on that one day to equal salvation for all of your life. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not the way that it works. Salvation is every day. The gospel is every day. Faith is every day. God is not simply requiring you are saved by Jesus, not some prayer you repeated. But when you've been saved by Jesus, there is now a life completely devoted to the person and work of Jesus. And yet that's not where most people sitting in the church are. They were told sometime by some guy leading them through these things, well, at the end of it, well, God will never leave you or forsake you. Have a great day. And so they're trusting that their lives, they've prayed some prayer, their life has been like hell ever since, but they're banking because somebody told them that they were saved and going to heaven and that Jesus would never leave them or forsaking them no matter what happened after that. That's called false conversion. Those people are not saved. Yet people sitting outside of the church, people sitting inside the church do believe that. Why? Because of preachers like me who have greatly deceived people through easy believism. As the old hymn says, the wondrous cross demands my life, my all. In 2011, Barna's study shows that nearly half of all the adults in America have prayed such a prayer and subsequently believe they are going to heaven. Okay, so all of, even the people from CNN that most of you don't watch because it's not Fox News because you believe that's Christian, even those people, okay, believe they are going to heaven. Though many of them rarely, if ever, attend church, read the Bible personally, or have lifestyles that differ in any significant way from those outside the church. So most of our population in America believes they have said some prayer, and yet they live like the rest of the world. There is no difference. Speaking on that very study, Dr. David Platt says this, listen to this. Now, people have used this research like this to conclude that Christians are not really that different from the rest of the world. But I am convinced that this conclusion is inaccurate. The one thing that is absolutely clear from all of these statistics is that there is a whole lot of people in the world who think they are Christians, but they are not. There are millions upon millions of people who believe in Jesus. The words out of their mouth of both, excuse me, um, there are millions upon millions of people who believe in Jesus and think that they are saved, but they are dangerously deceived. And some, maybe many of them, have been deceived in the church. The first words out of the mouth of both John the Baptist and Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, repent First words that Peter says in Acts chapter 2 says the same thing. In Acts chapter 3 verse 19, repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 8 verse 22, repent of wickedness. Acts 26 20, repent and turn to God. Acts 17 30, God demands all people everywhere to repent. Repent and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16 31, the Gentiles in Cornelius' home believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 11 17. And that's the word that is used over all of John chapter 3 and this entire gospel seven times from verses 11 through 21. Believe, 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 believe. Repent and believe. So it's not just saying Jesus. It is not just saying, I believe this. Yep. 
But a true, authentic Christian, has, their entire existence has been characterized by this transformation, transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is transformation. And some of you haven't been transformed since that prayer that you said. And ladies and gentlemen, my fear, I'm calling you. The Bible is calling us. The gospel is calling us. If that's you, ladies and gentlemen, I fear that you are not saved. The hardest people to reach in America aren't the atheists. It's the people sitting in church who believe that they are saved and they are not. And our churches are rampant with this stuff. Titus 1.16 says, they profess. It's interesting that word profess means, um, it's the same word for confess, but it's in the present tense. That means that this is that they, it's on their lips continually. All right? So get this, this is a really interesting passage, Titus 1.16, they profess. So they're constantly saying, God, Jesus is 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 God. All right? But keep reading that passage, it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Luke 8.13 says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no roots. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. I see this happen a lot. I've seen it happen in every church I've been a part of. The church I grew up in. The church I served in for 11 years. The church in Arizona and the church of mission in Bowling Green. I've seen people sprout and you think, oh my gosh, this is going to be a solid oak in the midst of our congregation. And they have withered and died. I've seen older adults. Thank you for being here. You're not an abstract part of our church. You are the, the core of our existence. We as younger people need you in our church. But I've seen older people who have supposedly lived faithfully for years and years and years not finish this race. Not finish it. And this is serious. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart. Their faith did not include repentance. What's repentance? Repentance is the heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience with Christ. Confession and belief is not something a person does to be saved, but because they are saved. They, they repent, they turn. Faith that does not lead to repentance in action is not saving faith. The book of Hebrews is all about faith. We have the great hall of faith as it's known in the book of Hebrews. But in the book of Hebrews, there is no noun for the word faith. Why? Because true faith apart from action does not exist. True saving faith is a rejection of sin. Do you hate your sin? Or are you simply trying to do this Christian thing and have your sin too? Do you hate it? This is repentance. Saving faith is rejection of sin. It's committing fully to following after Jesus in obedience. The Bible declares in the book of Corinthians that if you have been saved by Jesus, you are a new creation. My question is, is where are the new creations? Where are the new creations, ladies and gentlemen? If you are saved, you are different. If you have believed in something, but you have not put your trust in it, then you will remain the same. The gospel changes us. It will happen. 
Your daily life should be different. Your commitment to a body of Christ should not be something if it just falls in line with your schedule. It should be a committed thing to be a part of a body of believers. Daily scripture reading, praying, evangelizing, this is a part that simply exudes from our very hearts and existence. And yet many of my friends, many of my family are claiming to have a relationship with Jesus and yet there is no fruit no fruit of faith there is no genuine faith in Jesus none why commit everything to Jesus in closing why because our confession our belief is centered on the Lord Jesus is Lord isn't this what this passage tells us confess that what Jesus is Lord what does the word Lord mean means master owner or the one who has absolute ownership One reference pointed out that Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as Savior ten times. But he is referred to as Lord seven hundred times. This was a huge statement for the Jews to hear. Because what Paul is saying is that Jesus is God. Which is blasphemous. It's the reason why they put Jesus on the cross. is because he is God. He is claiming to be God. If that means that he is God and you have been saved for him, then he owns you. He dictates your moves. Martin Luther, the great father of the, the Protestant Reformation, says this. Puts the Lord in an interesting perspective, noting that the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It's quite another thing to say that Christ or that He is my Savior and Lord. See, the devil can say the first. But only the true Christian alone can say with their lives the second. See, Satan or demon status, this is the reason why I stress this um, more than agreeing with facts. Satan agrees and knows that the Old Testament miracles happened. He believes in the virgin birth. He believes Jesus lived a perfect life. He believes that Jesus healed people. He believed that Jesus was crucified on the cross. He believes that early on that Sunday morning that he was raised from the dead. And Satan all believes, also believes that Jesus is coming back. And yet, he cannot submit to him as Lord. See, we live in a society, ladies and gentlemen, where a lot of people are claiming Jesus as their Savior, but He isn't the ruler of their lives. He's not their Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, if that's you, if that's them, you're claiming Jesus as Savior, but there is no fruit that He is your Lord, then He's not your Savior. Some of you are sitting right there saying, I'm not, He's not talking about me. No, I'm talking about you. This was the realization that came to me when I was 19. Only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I lived as a believer for 19 years. I am 100% convinced if I would have died within those 19 years of being a goody, goody believer, church boy, I would have split the gates of hell wide open. And I did not drink like a lot of you. And I did not use bathroom words. And I did not watch pornography. Except when my neighbors had it. I did not do drugs. All the while, believing if you ask me the questions. Yes, yes, yes. And then at 19, understood and was completely wrecked in my sin. And the greatness of God and His saving sovereignty and election and grace and mercy. I believed as Satan did. But I did not put my trust in the truth of the gospel. In the person and work of Jesus. So my question today is that as we sit here, as you need to, as Pastor BJ leads us, some of you need to sit And you need to really think about this. You need to marinate on this. You need to wrestle with God this week. As you ask the question and answer the question, is Jesus my Lord? Is He your Lord? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, please, I pray against the twisting as Satan would like to come in and say that all of a sudden now we're trying to say that we're saved by works. No, we're saved by faith, but yet faith does work. Lord, forgive me and other pastors who maybe with good intentions just want to see people check a box or say a prayer or just be able to say this many people got baptized at our church. Lord, forgive us where we have mishandled the gospel. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray today, Father, Lord, that if there's somebody here that is lost and undone with you, if they're churched up or living in a ditch, save them both. May we not be promoters of nominal Christianity and just trying to get people through the express lane. But God, may we plead with you for their salvation. May we plead with them for repentance and with true faith, saving faith, faith that is, 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 is the fruit of action that comes within our hearts, Lord Jesus. May we be a faithful church. Or may we not be a pseudo-church or a poser church. May we be a faithful church. And Lord, if that means we see one faithful convert, but Lord, they've been truly changed by the gospel. And it's only one for a year, but Lord, let us celebrate that one. May we walk walk beside of them in discipleship. Lord, call us to you, Jesus. Help our mouths to proclaim you. Help our hearts to profess you. As you work in our lives, Father, and in our city, Lord, change our city, God. Change Change the church climate in our city. Change the the cultural climate in our city, Jesus. And let it begin in here. In Jesus' name, may we respond to him today. Amen.